You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and & Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is legendary Hoosier sports writer, Mark Monteith. You know him from covering the Pacers games, from a best-selling book he wrote about Gene Cady and the Purdue Boilermakers' 87-88 season. We're definitely going to talk to him about that since Coach Cady was just on the podcast. And Mark also writes for the Indianapolis Business Journal. Mark, thank you very, very much for coming on. Hey, my pleasure, Robert. Good to be with you. He is also something else, and we're going to talk about this at the very end of the podcast. Uh, he's also a cancer survivor. And like so many people who've beaten the big C, as John Wayne once called it, uh, we want to hear how he did it and talk about his courage facing down one of the single worst things and worst diagnoses you could ever hear. Mark, I was reading through your website, and I want to make sure if you're listening to this podcast, you write this website address down. It's markmonteith.com, markmonteith.com. If you are a fan of Hoosier sports history, please visit this website. It is, I think, get me wrong, Mark, is it $15, $20 for a lifetime membership? Uh, $19.95 for a lifetime membership, yes. I joined the website and quite honestly have been incredibly uh, entertained by his, his stories, his articles, and Mark's interviews. And we're going to talk about some of those as well. But I want to make sure that we get a little bit of background because it leads right into Mark's uh, the first of many uh, interactions with IU basketball coach Bob Knight. Mark, you're born, raised in Indianapolis. Is that correct? Correct. I grew up on the northwest side on 65th Street off of Michigan Road in Pike Township. Uh, and Did you go to Pike the- Township? Pardon? Did you go to Pike Township schools? Yes. Yeah, I went to Pike High School. And played on the basketball team there and worked for the student newspaper and um, lived in the same house all through my childhood, actually. Well, I think this is correct. I don't know that there's been any more than this, but Mark is our third Pike High School alum to be on the podcast. Uh, The first is Peter Carmichael, who runs the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. And the second is uh, a guy who's really showing amazing, amazing leadership these days, and that's Governor Eric Holcomb. Yes. You went to Ball State. Uh, Reading your bio, you expressed a desire to be a journalist at an early age. 
you went to Ball State, but you ended up at Indiana University after I think just one year. Talk a little bit about that transition. Yeah, when I was in high school, I really thought I had no choice but to go to Ball State if I wanted to major in journalism and stay in state. I didn't want my parents to have to pay out-of-state tuition. Um, my high school journalism teacher um, had been a Ball State grad, and we used to go to Ball State on weekends for various journalism workshop type things. And I thought I really had no choice for whatever reason. I wasn't familiar with Indiana's journalism program. And when I got to Ball State uh, at that time, you know, I just felt like it was kind of, it wasn't a small school, it wasn't a big school. And I didn't see any advantages of either of those things. I just didn't quite feel like I was fitting in. And I became more aware of IU's journalism program. And I wound up transferring there for my last three years. And certainly nothing against Ball State. And obviously, they have a great communication school now. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad I transferred just for the opportunity to cover Big Ten sports, to cover Bob Knight. That was certainly an educational experience. Um, and I just kind of like being on the bigger campus. I either wanted to be at a small school, you know, Franklin College type of thing, or a big school like IU. And uh, so I think it turned out to be a good move for me. You were fortunate enough from a maybe a basketball fan's perspective and a journalist perspective to hit Indiana University just as Knight's first recruiting class was getting it going. What was it like to be there in that 74, 75, 75, 76 seasons where, and what I think is probably Knight's most underrated accomplishment, not only did he win the national championship in 76, but he also won 36 games in a row in the Big Ten. That is something that I dare to say will never, ever, ever happen again. You got yeah. to cover those teams and be on campus during that time. Uh, what was it like? Well, it was a great experience for a journalist. And actually, the team I covered for the Indiana Daily Student was uh, my senior year, the 76-77 season, which is the only season Bob Knight did not have a team go to a postseason tournament. Didn't even make the NIT. I was the sports editor of the Daily Student when they won the national championship in 76. So I was the guy back in the office putting out the paper. I didn't cover the games. And then my senior year, I was one of two beat writers that covered the team. So it was a great experience. Uh, you know, basketball obviously was just, um, I mean, it couldn't have been any bigger. I would say even now, all these years later, those two years of 75, 76 were kind of the peak moment for Knight. Uh, even though he won national championships, and I covered those teams too uh, later, but he was uh, at his absolute peak at that time. But my experience covering the team that didn't go to a postseason tournament might have been the best thing from a journalistic standpoint. Uh, five guys quit the team that year. And a couple of them were critical of him on the way out the door. And you got to recall Bob Knight, obviously, is a god in the 76-77 season. He's coming off an undefeated season in the national championship, uh, two undefeated regular seasons. And suddenly guys are quitting the team, and a couple of them are critical. A guy named Mike Bidet from Ohio said he dehumanized me the way he was yelling at me. Uh, you know, I mean, it was just an amazing thing. But it taught me a lot, certainly. I was able to maintain uh, a professional relationship with him 
by getting both sides of the story. You know, if a guy would quit the team and be critical, you know, I would talk to a former player who would add some perspective to it. Uh, so it was a crazy experience. He kicked me out of practice one day because he was mad at what somebody else at the student paper had written. Uh, but we got that resolved. Uh, it kind of prepared me for the real world of covering sports for uh, daily newspapers uh, because no coach that I was going to deal with was going to be more challenging than he was. So in a different kind of way, it probably brought the best out of me. In 77, Knight had Kent Benson, who went on to be the overall number one pick in the NBA draft, famously got punched <laughs> in his very first pro game, I think, <laughs> by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Welcome to the NBA. <laughs> But why did that team, just very quickly, why did that team, obviously it lost tons of talent, but why did that team do so poorly? Yeah, uh, number one, young. You know, they were relying a lot on freshmen. Mike Woodson, uh, Butch Carter were freshmen on that team. Part of it was Bob Knight's fault, I think, in that he was so accustomed to coaching great, experienced players and winning that uh, he had a difficult time adjusting to coaching younger guys who weren't as good, who were going to struggle uh, and being patient with them. So I think he basically admitted that later on. Uh, it was a big adjustment for him. Um, team just didn't meld. You know, the, it just wasn't that good. Uh, and it was too young. Ben, Kent Benson was a, an All-American, but he was really all they had as far as a dependable uh, scoring weapon and just uh, as far as being an outstanding player. Mike Woodson, Butch Carter became outstanding players, but they were freshmen on that team. You couldn't rely on them too much. So uh, just a lot of different things went wrong. And I may have the chronology a little incorrect here, so please correct me. He would have had, meaning Coach Knight, a incredibly formidable score on that team had <laughs> not Larry Bird transferred from IU after just a few weeks to go to Indiana State eventually. Uh, Birds never blamed Knight about that ever. He just said it was too big. He wasn't used to it. He wasn't comfortable. He had no money. And in that sort of campus environment, he just couldn't handle. Did you ever have a chance to – I know you've interviewed uh, Bird on more than one occasion, but were you aware of Bird back then when you were at Bloomington and – what did he say about it later if you had a chance to ask him about it? Yeah, I was only vaguely aware of Larry Bird then. You know, Larry Bird was a third-team All-State guy out of a small high school in southern Indiana. So obviously nobody was predicting, you know, what would come to be for Larry Bird. Um, so he was just a guy who left the program that people had only vaguely heard of, I think, a third-team All-State guy. It turned out a guy who became a friend of mine on campus actually – um, got he took Bird's place in the dorm room. You know, they had they were always overcrowded then, and certain people were sleeping in lounges on cots, you know, their early weeks of the semester. And then <laughs> would leave, you know, and get homesick and go home. Uh, you could move into a real room. So, this friend of mine, Randy, actually moved into Larry Bird's old spot in the dorm room and lived with Jim Wisman, uh, one of the players on the IU team. So, that was kind of strange, but. Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've talked to Larry about it and you're right. You know, it, it was just a situation where he was from a small town and felt overwhelmed on campus. There were stories of the 
varsity players, guys like Kent Benson not treating him well, kind of a hazing situation. Yeah, I've heard that. Didn't feel welcomed by his teammates. But I think he was just basically overwhelmed by the whole atmosphere. And Jim Wisman had come from a pretty affluent family and had a closet full of clothes. And Larry Bird just had a couple pair of blue jeans and hardly anything. So I think it was just a very uncomfortable situation for him. And I think looking back on it, he was probably better off, you know, going through Indiana State's program and being the star there. You know, I don't know that, you know, Bob Knight necessarily would have brought out his best game. Bob Knight is a control freak and wants to be the man in charge and doesn't want any player getting to be too big. And Larry has admitted he's not the kind of guy who liked being yelled at. And he was certainly going to get yelled at if he stayed and played for Bob <laughs> Knight in Indiana. So I think it worked out for the best for Larry Bird. And, uh, you know, in the long run, it worked out just fine for Bob Knight, too. I think I recall in interviews uh, that that Bird kind of, in the pros, kind of stuck it to Kent Benson more than once. Yeah, and he when I talked to him, he didn't really want to go there, you know, all those years later. But I think that's probably true. You know, I think, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Certain college programs and maybe pros, too, kind of have a, traditional almost of hazing the new guys and challenging them and really just being kind of nasty to them, kind of the fraternity mindset of putting the pledges through a, an initiation process. And uh, I think that might've been the case at IU at the time. So, you know, there was also a story reported once where Bird was in a restaurant with his girlfriend and Knight walked in and kind of ignored him. Yeah. And you hear stories like that, but I think the big, Bottom line is that he just wasn't comfortable there and didn't feel like he fit in, and he hitchhiked home. <laughs> that's that's so Larry Bird. And yeah. got a job at the sanitation department. Worked for the city, and he uh, painted curbs, and he did a little bit of garbage pickup and cleaned up different areas. Yeah, he was on the city sanitation department. What was your first job out of IU? Worked for the Marion Chronicle Tribune. You know, and that was my only opportunity. Uh, as I remember, the economy wasn't that great then and newspapers weren't hiring. It's not like I had a lot of choices to make. Uh, in fact, it was like a few weeks after I had graduated that I finally got a call and had a chance to go to the Chronicle Tribune in Marion, Indiana. Uh, circulation of about 20, 25,000, somewhere in that range. And actually was a good place to start. You know, I, I was here, I was used to covering Big Ten basketball, and I go there and I'm covering county high schools, not even Marion High School. I was covering county high schools, but it was really a talented staff. You know, sometimes you hear talk about boxers like the uh, light, the middleweights or whatever, and they say pound for pound, he's the best fighter in the sure. world. I felt like the Chronicle Tribune in Marion at that time was pound for pound as good a newspaper as there was in the state. We had some real talent there. And they, had, they were the only newspaper in the state at the time with an offset press and was running uh, color photographs on a daily basis. And we had great photo staff. Um, you know, my sports editor was an old timer who was having a difficult time adjusting to the technological changes. But he was a good guy and I enjoyed working with him. And I was there for a year and a half and covered a lot of high school stuff and got a few other opportunities too. Uh, but it turned out to be a good place to start. As we always do on the Leaders and Legends podcast, we give credit where credit is due. And one of the people I frequently credit for helping me prepare for these shows is uh, the incomparable Bill Benner. 
And when I told him you were coming on, he said, you won't have a problem filling an hour with Mark, I guarantee you. <laughs> and after reading your website, and I want to keep saying the website address, markmonteith.com, um, I got exactly the point that Bill was making to me. I don't know that anyone in Indiana knows high school basketball like you do. Did you develop your love for that particular game when Indiana had the one-class tourney at Marion, was it something that you brought to IU through Marion and then eventually the star? And well, no, I grew up in it. You know, I um, grew up watching the state tournament on television. I could remember the first state championship game I saw was the 1961 Manuel Kokomo game. I was at my grandmother's house when aunts and uncles were there for some reason, and we were watching that game on television. I just remember you know, the feelings they had about the game and what a big deal it seemed. So it was automatic every year to watch the state finals. And I had an older brother, have an older brother, 10 years older, Dave, who um, played high school basketball. So when I'm five, six years old, I'm going to bike high school games in their old gym and love that atmosphere. And uh, so I played high school basketball. So I was kind of immersed in it growing up. And um I wouldn't claim to be the uh, ultimate authority in high school basketball today, but I do know I do have a great appreciation for the history and know what was going on in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and you know have interviewed a lot of the Mr. Basketballs and those players. So, just a great appreciation for what high school basketball means in Indiana and the way it brought people together and what it meant to smaller communities. I played on the first Pike team that won a sectional in 1972, which is kind of weird when you think about it, because Pike's been around forever. It was called New Augusta High School before World War II. So we're going back to the 1800s. We're going back to the very beginnings of the state tournament in 1911. And Pike didn't win a sectional until 1972. And uh, I just, it was just a big deal. I mean, we were, we had a pep rally Monday morning and then went home for the rest of the day, got out of school. And then the next weekend we won the regional. And the same thing, you know, pep rally Monday morning and we're off for the rest of the day because everybody was just too excited to go to school. <laughs> so that's what Indiana basketball meant then in the one-class system. Winning a sectional was a huge thing. So um, I was just immersed in that growing up and had a great appreciation for it. Pike's done pretty well since then. Yeah, they have. A lot bigger school than when I went there. Do you have a favorite high school basketball team that you've either covered or chronicled? Ah, seen in person. Yeah. You know, that 69 Washington high school team is really special. I think, you know, they went undefeated and won the championship and, you know, you talk about a loaded team. I mean, you know, George McGinnis is in the Naismith hall of fame. Steve Downing became an all American at IU and was the first round draft pick at the Celtics. Wayne Pack went to Tennessee tech and played briefly for the Pacers. Jim Arnold got a scholarship to Texas and Louis day had a football scholarship to IU. So you're talking about, an incredibly talented team that won the state championship with an undefeated season. And the other one, I guess I go back to is the, uh, the EC Washington team of 71, just two years later where you had again, five incredibly talented starters, you know, Pete Turgovich went to UCLA and junior Bridgman played uh, like 12 years in the NBA, mm -hmm. thing like that for the Milwaukee bucks. And Tim Stoddard played professional baseball uh, you know, Darnell Adell and Reuben Bailey were the guards. I remember the names of those, all the starters on that team. So those two teams really stood out because I guess I was at the right age then, 
you know, in 69, that state championship, I would have been 13 years old. Then I would have been 15 a couple of years later. So that's the age where you're old enough to understand what's going on and appreciate it and still have kind of an idealistic outlook on it as well. So I suppose those two, those two teams stand out to me. May I mention another one? And I got to see it from afar because I was in the military and you have a, a brilliant, a very uh, insightful interview with its main star. And that would be going back to your Marion roots. Uh, the, the three P I think it was mm-hmm. 86, 87, 88 or 87, yeah. 88, 89, Jay Edwards, Lyndon Jones, that team with Bill green, who I think also coached the Washington team of McGinnis and Downing. Right. right. Um, yeah. And I, in, in those years, you know, I'm, I didn't cover high school, so I didn't cover those state championships. So I was basically covering college things then. And uh, so I didn't see them in person, but yeah, I, I was able to do one-on-one episodes with Jay Edwards and Lyndon Jones. And uh, yeah, to win three state championships in a row uh, is a, a huge thing. So um, do you have a favorite uh, uh, gymnasium? Well, personally, my favorite high school gymnasium was Pike's Old Gym because that's where I was going when I was five, six years old. It, <laughs> it wasn't huge, but it was just one of those classic, you know, all wooden bleachers, you know, three-sided, had a stage at one end. And it just seemed like the coolest place in the world to me, you know. Now, as far as places I visited uh, as an adult, um, yeah, I mean, you got to love Newcastle just for being uh, the largest at one point. And, you know, you walk in at the top of it. I always liked Carmel's gym, the one they still use, because I played in that. And I I guess these gyms where you walk in at the top always seem really cool to me, Mm -hmm. different about those. Um, What about the wigwam? Yeah, and yeah, definitely should mention the wigwam. And I did go to um, some games there. I, I did go to some games there. So uh, the whole thing about the wigwam, the gym itself wasn't probably any more special than Newcastle or Richmond or Kokomo or whatever, but they had that elaborate pregame ceremony with the Indian and the squaw and the tom-toms and everything with the lights going out. So I think that's what people really love to remember about the wigwam. You don't have to elaborate too much, but who would be your three or four best Indiana high school players you ever saw with your own eyes play yeah the ones I saw uh and if we're talking including saw on television um you know I would include George McGinnis certainly um you know just a dominant player uh physically dominant kind of a you know a little reckless when he was in high school but a coachable player very dominant um yeah it's tough because there's so many you know uh, Damon Bailey Damon Bailey, I only saw on television. I did not cover the game at the RCA Dome or Hoosier Dome, whatever it was then. Uh, but he would have to be up there as a high school player, certainly. Um, I uh, Steve Alford? Yeah, I, di- I didn't really see him in high school. You know, I, I saw him obviously a lot at IU, but I didn't see him. But he would have to be up there. I think in Indiana, we really appreciate the shooters. You know, the whole – uh, stereotype of the, the the white guy who shoots really well <laughs> at the end of thing. And um, there have been plenty of those. Uh, I, um, you know, I thought Pete Turgovich in high school was just outstanding. It was funny to me how he was such a score in high school. He scored 40 points in the afternoon game in the state finals and then 28 in the championship game. And everybody compared him to Pete Maravich. 
because he was like six, five skinny guy with floppy hair. <laughs> um, and he scored a lot. And then Turkovich goes to college at UCLA and they take that away from him right away, the scoring. And he becomes basically a defender and, and ball handler type of guy and winds up starting on Wooden's last championship team. But I, in high school in 1971, Pete Turgovich was a really big deal, uh, partly because of Maravich and there was that automatic sure. person, but he had a certain style about his game and just a certain, I guess, aura about him that uh, really got a lot of people excited. Last name I'll mention, and I, you, you didn't cover him in high school, I'm guessing based on the chronology that we've discussed and that's Glenn Robinson. Yeah. Uh, Robinson, I just watched on television. Um, and, you know, I remember the game against Alan Henderson uh, in the buff, and that was certainly a memorable game. I should mention Rick Mount. You know, I didn't see, I saw Rick Mount play in high school. Uh, Lebanon beat Pike in the sectional, uh, which was held in Zionsville at the time. And you would had to have been there to understand what a big deal Rick Mountain was at that time. I mean, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 19. 19- the first high school kid, is that right? The first high school kid from a team sport. There had been Olympic athletes like swimmers, I think, who had been on the cover who were high school age. But Rick Mount was the first high school athlete on a team sport to be on the cover. And in 1966, before we have ESPN and all these things, that was as big a deal as it was to be on sure. Sports Illustrated. I could remember uh, being a fifth grader at Eastbrook Elementary and we knew this Sports Illustrated was going to come out because there had been mention of it in the newspapers. And one day word got out that, hey, that Sports Illustrated is down in the library. And a few friends and I sprinted down there <laughs> at the Sports Illustrated copy. That's how big a deal it was. And Rick Mount had such a unique game, such an un- unbelievable shooter. Uh, and to see him in person in that Zionsville sectional against Pike was really exciting. Best shooter and in- I, Indiana high school basketball history? I would say so. You know, I don't know what his percentages were in high school. And it's kind of funny. You look at his three-point percentage with the Pacers. It was like 31%, which is bad today. But there were uh, some circumstances behind that. He later shot much better for other teams. But as far as the pure shooter, the best-looking jump shot I've ever seen, uh, I was with him in the summer. Uh, at his old high school in Lebanon where he did a shooting camp for kids and he still has that same shooting form and it was just a beautiful thing to watch the perfect jump shot uh, able to shoot off the dribble uh, fading into the corner Um, yeah he'd be my favorite jump shooter I think in Indiana's history you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are here with Mark Monteith, author, journalist, cancer survivor and one uh, of the of the most knowledgeable sports figures I've ever talked to uh, this is really our first extended conversation I've met him a few times he's right up there with Bill Benner he's right up there with uh, Bob Hamill and the list of folks who have chronicled the the sports icons and events of my youth and, and many many others uh, Mark is there a 
who's your leader or legend you particularly admire? Hmm. Who's your leader or legend? I guess I would naturally kind of lean towards athletics, you know, um, a great leader. Uh, well, I'll tell you one person that I would go to not in sports would be Richard Luger. You know, I, uh, uh, had a chance to communicate with him. I did a book with Max Shoemaker of the Indianapolis Indians a couple of years ago. And Richard Luger was a high school classmate of Max's and agreed to do the forward for the book. So I called Luger and, um, and I had met him actually our high school team at Pike went down to the city County building to have lunch with the mayor after we won the uh, regional. And um, so I shook hands and got a picture taken in, but I had a chance to speak with him for the book and I've always admired him as somebody who rose above politics and was a statesman. You know, he um, was willing to co cooperate, a uh, highly intelligent person, a great character. Max Shoemaker has the story that when they would ride together to go see an Indians game as kids, like as college kids or high school kids, if Luger would drive, he would never exceed the speed limit even <laughs> one mile an hour. If it was a 30 mile an hour zone, he would not go 31. You know, that's how pure he was. And then, you know, to be as smart as he was, he did so many great things for the city of Indianapolis. Marcus Square Arena would not have been built downtown if not for him. There would have been probably a stadium out in the cornfields in Pike Township, as a matter of fact. So we learned that story when we had Bill Benner on the podcast. I did not know that particular story. Yeah. That people wanted the stadium to be built in the suburbs. And, yes. and then Mayor Luger, along with, I believe, his then chief of staff and, and also podcast guest, Jim Morris, yes. figured out the way to use federal monies to, to build Market Square Arena downtown. And that's really, along with the building of the convention center, the first two main cogs in, in the engine of downtown Indianapolis, which, of course, is struggling during the current turmoil, but has fueled our growth for decades. No question. No question. That's just, that was a huge moment for the city. The city would be much different today if not for what uh, Mayor Luger did at that time. So I've been, you know, and, you know, I'm not generally, you know, conservative minded in my political outlook, but, you know, he's certainly somebody who rose above all that. And I thought deserved a lot of admiration. A lot of coaches I've admired, but, you know, I've, I've also recognized them as fallible humans as well. You know, I, I would never look up to a coach as a godlike figure or say he ought to be president, somebody like that. I'd, I'd give you another name, though, that just came to mind. Donnie Walsh, you know, has been a, a huge factor in this city. You know, I covered the Pacers for 12 years for the star and obviously had a lot of dealings with Donnie Walsh, who was the team general manager and president uh, during most of those years and have great respect for him as a genuine leader whose ego was not wrapped up in the job, who just wanted the team to be as good as it can be and be a good representative of the city, um, wasn't power hungry uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it was really uh, educational and enjoyable for me to observe somebody do a difficult job and do it really well for a long period of time. And you don't see that a lot. You know, Max Shoemaker, the Indians also, I would put in that category, did a tremendous job. And that's why we have a nice downtown stadium in Indianapolis. Uh, those two guys ran professional franchises in a totally uh, professional manner and successful manner. 
and that makes the city better. You know, those two franchises have made the city better. We should also mention that when uh, Donnie Walsh was on our podcast and I asked him the Hoosier leader or legend he particularly admired, his answer was Richard Luger. Yeah. Donnie and I have talked about Luger some, and Donnie's one who pointed out he's a statesman. He's not a politician. He's a statesman. And uh, again, I can speak for Donnie that he may not have had the same political viewpoint on everything, but he recognizes talent and character. And uh, I know he was also a great admirer of Richard Luger. We've talked a lot about high school basketball because it is so important in Indiana. And those of us who lament the loss of the one class uh, tournament uh, and the specialness that it brought to Indiana, not only within the state, but outside the state, uh, you've covered that well, but you covered college basketball for many, many years. Talk a little bit about your career after leaving Marion and what you covered during this phase. Yeah, from Marion, I went to Fort Wayne, uh, Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. There were two papers there at the time, and the Journal-Gazette was the morning paper. And uh, after a year and a half in Marion, I got an opportunity to go to Fort Wayne because the assistant editor up there had been at the Daily Student when I was a student at IU. Uh, so I had a, I knew somebody, I had a connection. You know, we all know it takes connections a lot of times to get the right opportunities. So I went to Fort Wayne and uh, after a couple of years there, I basically became a college uh, writer. I covered IU and Purdue football and basketball and did other things, but those were the two main things. And uh, for a while, I mean, I made a lot of trips from Fort Wayne to Bloomington to cover a game, Fort Wayne to Lafayette, you know, a three hour drive to Bloomington, excuse me, about a two and a half hour drive uh, along highways 24 and 25 to get to Lafayette and uh, get back at three in the morning, that kind of thing. I had, my parents still lived in Indianapolis. So a lot of times if I went to Bloomington, I'd just come back to Indianapolis and stay there for the night. But um, it was great, you know, to cover IU and Purdue throughout the 80s, uh, throughout the 80s, uh, up until 1990 when I left the Fort Wayne paper. Um, there were some great teams there and some great games. I mean, the, you know, the all-time peak for me was that 86-87 season when uh, IU won the national championship, but IU and Purdue tied for the Big Ten championship. And they played one another, and each team won by 11 points on its home court. You know, I mean, they were that evenly matched uh, and just the atmosphere at those games. You know, I was at the game when Bob Knight threw the chair. Uh, I was at, you know, those games in Mackey Arena. <laughs> Mackey Arena is the loudest arena I've ever been in. You know, when when Indiana came in, uh, that place would get louder than any place I've ever been. So uh, just a lot of classic games uh, with, involving those two programs throughout the 1980s. Did you – we had Gene Cady on the podcast. He was absolutely terrific, very generous. Um, he tells the story about wanting to go to Purdue or thinking about it, and McGuire telling him, "Don't go there. You'll never beat Knight." Mm -hmm. And and famously, Cady has I think a twenty two twenty one record against Coach Knight. Now, mm -hmm. as an IU fan, I would quickly point out <laughs> he's missing two national championships and another trip to the final four, but you can't deny uh, coach Katie's greatness, which must have led you to write your book passion play, which is, which is a book on the 87, 88 
Purdue season. And I'm going to guess it was somewhat inspired by A Season on the Brink, the John mm-hmm. Feinstein book about the 85-86 IU team, which all of us IU fans were like, man, why couldn't you have written that book one year later? <laughs> but talk a little bit about what you thought regarding Feinstein's book. Did you learn anything you didn't already know because you had covered night? And 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 discuss your book, Passion Play, about Purdue's 87-88 season, where I think Purdue won the Big Ten outright and was ranked number one. for. They didn't do well in the tournament. They lost in the first or second round. They were ranked first, second. Yeah, they were ranked second. Second, but they had a terrific, terrific team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, season on the brink was kind of an eye-opener. I knew what Bob Knight could be like behind closed doors when you cover a team and are around the program for a while. You eventually will probably have conversations with former players or certain people off the record that give insight into what's going on behind the closed doors. But it was still awfully interesting, you know, and eye-opening to, you know, see it uh, reported that specifically. Uh, And it was just something I wanted to try professionally. I was at that point where I thought I wanted to try a book. And Purdue was going to have a really good team in that 87-88 season. They had tied IU for the national champion or for the Big Ten championship. Uh, in 87 and they were bringing back four of their starters and uh, they had a chance you know I thought man if you could latch onto this and uh, follow a team all the way through the season with absolutely total access to everything that's going on and cover a team that wins the championship or at least gets to the final four that could be a great thing and you know Gene Cady was always frustrated by the amount of attention Bob Knight got and the dominance he had in the state and the difficulty in recruiting against Bob Knight. So he was all for it when I brought it up to him. He thought that would be great. And we agreed that I would, I could live up there, rent an apartment. I'd go to every coach's meeting. I'd be in the locker room for every pregame, halftime, postgame session. I went to every practice. I traveled with the team, uh, paid my own expenses uh, and, you know, maintained uh, the professional objectivity that you have to do. Uh, but it was great because not many coaches would do that. Not many coaches would allow you to do that and not want to censor it in advance. And he never, you know, read it before it went to publication. So I look back on that now and have a great appreciation for that. And I'm still in touch with coach Katie, talked to him a couple of weeks ago and, you know, have a great appreciation for what he allowed me to do and how he ran his program. Obviously a coach, who has a lot to hide is not going to let a reporter come in and spend every day with you and um, report on it. So it was a great experience. It was an educational experience because you see college basketball beyond the games. You know, the games are just the tip of the iceberg in college basketball. They only play a couple games a week. So you're practicing, you know, three, four days a week. Uh, you have all these meetings and everything. And, you know, you realize what all goes into just putting on a game. And you also are reminded, at least I was, uh, how young college athletes are. You know, when I did that book, I was, what, 32, 33 years old, 32, I guess. And uh, so I'd been out of college for 10 years, 11 years. And uh, I had kind of forgotten how young college (laughs) players are, just the, the silly things they say and do and what you might call immaturity, even though they're more mature than the average college student and a lot of adults as well, you know, just the the things that they found funny and the way they choked around uh, was kind of fun to watch. So were you surprised when they lost in the second round? 
Uh, I was. They lost. Uh, they they uh, beat fairly Dickinson in the first round. They beat uh, who'd they play the second round? Uh, uh, they won. They played their first two games in Notre Dame, which is ironic because Digger Phelps would never play Purdue back then, and they you know were, that's the only way they could get in to play. Notre Dame. <laughs> they won their first two games, and then uh, so they go to the second weekend, and uh, oh, so they played. They made it to the Sweet Sixteen. Okay, for yeah, me. they did. They did uh, easily, and then they get to play Kansas state in the third round. And they had a great week of practice leading up to it. I thought they were perfectly prepared. I thought they had a great mindset. They go into that game and jump out to a 10 0 lead. And they still led by nine at halftime and it got away from them in the second half. Looking back on that game, there were some deceiving things. Purdue had beaten Kansas state by like 22 points during the regular season at Mackey arena. Um, Might've given them a false sense of confidence. but Kansas State changed the way they played. After losing to Purdue, they changed their whole approach, their whole style of play. Uh, uh, I think they slowed down their offense. And K-State, you know, Mitch Richmond was on that K-State team. Right. One year later, he was Rookie of the Year in the NBA. They had two other players on that team who wound up playing briefly in the NBA, whereas Purdue had one guy on that team who wound up making it to the NBA, and that was Everett Stevens, who played one year for the Pacers and had a couple of 10-day contracts as well. Oh, Todd Mitchell played also played briefly in the NBA. Mel McCants was the 12th man on a Lakers team but never played. Uh, Steve Scheffler, a sophomore in that Purdue team, did have an NBA career, but he wasn't that great a factor uh, in, in that particular game because he was scared to death playing in the Silver Dome up in Detroit. You know, again, reminding how young these guys are, Scheffler – who had a really, he really came on well in that season, that 87, 88 season, for whatever reason, went out in that big dome stadium and was just scared to death. And so he didn't play uh, very much at all in the second half. So I have a theory um, that it's a bad thing to jump off to a comfortable lead early in a basketball game. It's my theorem that it almost seems inevitable when a team jumps out to an early double figure lead, they give that lead back and they usually lose the game. Because your mindset changes, you know, you uh, you relax. The other team, meanwhile, focuses. They're in a crisis situation. They get focused and really come together. And once you lose your momentum the first time, it's hard to get it back. So I see that over and over in basketball, um, whereas a, where a team gets off to a comfortable lead and loses the game or certainly at least loses the lead, uh, the exception would be if it's just a huge mismatch of talent. But that's rare. Sure. So – and it goes back to that Purdue game. You know, Purdue led 10-0. They got up to – they were just rolling at the beginning, showed no fear, came out rolling, uh, and still led by nine at the half, and then it gets away from them. I see it all the time in Pacer games. Uh, that One of the most famous Pacer games is game seven in the 98 playoffs conference finals in Chicago. You know, uh, right. uh, the Bulls went on to win the title. The Pacers led by 12 early in that game. It's almost like the worst thing you can do is come out rolling and get off to a comfortable lead because all that's going to do is wake up the opponent and it's going to relax you. Do you think that that was Katie's best Purdue team or was the team with Glenn Robinson that made it to the elite eight? Do you believe that was a better team? That's a tough one because the 88 Purdue team was so balanced. You know, you had guys that had been together a long time. You didn't have a first round draft pick on that team, but you had a really balanced cohesive team that had played together for a few years. Uh, whereas the Purdue team with Robinson just had a superstar, the first pick in the draft. 
I think I would give the nod to the 88 team, maybe because I'm more familiar with it, but I thought they had better depth and balance, which I think is important. Now you get into tournament games or playoff games. It's often just about talent and having one guy who can take over the game and dominate. You know, you know, people remember that 46 point game Robinson had when they beat Kansas in the NCAA tournament to get to the final eight. Uh, you know, that was just one player taking over the game and dominating it. Uh, you know, Purdue would have had a hard time. That 88 team would have had a hard time with Glenn Robinson, but I would have given the nod, I think, to that 88 team just because of the depth and balance. If the 1981 IU National Championship team played the 1987 IU National Championship team, who do you think would come out on top? I think 81. 81, uh, Isaiah Thomas, you know, was a superstar player. Uh, and you look at that 81 team, I mean, Ray Tolbert played 10 years in the NBA. Uh, Randy Whitman played 10, 12 years in the NBA. Um, Landon Turner would have played in the NBA. Ted Kitchell was an awfully good college player. I just think that 81 team was more talented. That 87 team, you know, you could call it Bob Knight's best coaching job. I tend to think coaches do about the same job every year, and they just have different collections of talent that maybe they relate to better or worse than other years. But the 87 team obviously was really good, but I just thought I think the 81 team had more talent. And while they struggled early in that season, by the time they got to the tournament, they were rolling. So I'd go to 81. Were you at, I think, is it Atlanta when IU beat North Carolina in the 1984 Sweet 16? Oh, uh, yes, I was. I was there, yeah. So on the list of Knight's best coaching jobs, coaching masterpieces, for IU, who had one uh, first-round draft pick, and that was Uwe Blop, who was you know a, a nondescript pro player, with all due respect, to beat the North Carolina Tar Heels, who were ranked number one in the country and had, if I can remember correctly, five first-round draft picks, including Sam Perkins and including Michael Jordan. For Knight to beat that North Carolina team, I remember watching it. On, I was in high school. I remember watching it on television, and you simply couldn't believe what you were watching. Like, there's no chance in hell. Yeah. Yeah, and Alfred had a great game. Marty Simmons, freshman, you know, contributed in that game. Uh, Dean Smith contributed to it by leaving Michael Jordan on the bench too long. <laughs> you know, Jordan got some early <laughs> foul trouble, so Dean Smith had him out of the game too long. But that was a great coaching job, no question, for that one game. Uh, and it was interesting, you know, that, but they come back two days later to lose to Virginia. You know, they have a chance to go to the Final Four. And that just spoke to me about how difficult it is to come off of a peak moment, you know, whether it's in the course of a game when you have that early run and get a big lead early, it's hard to follow up on that. Just like when you have a great win like Indiana had over North Carolina that day, it's hard to come back the next game and play again and regain that focus and enthusiasm and energy because you're still riding high from your accomplishment. So those are the kind of things you see over and over in sports and get reminded of every year. Yeah, Virginia makes it to the Final Four the year after losing Ralph Sampson. Yeah. Go figure. And they were in the Final Four when IU won the national championship in 81 because they had lost to North Carolina and IU had beaten LSU. You mentioned Knight's coaching jobs. Uh, To me, his team that came absolutely out of nowhere to do 
much better than anyone expected was the 88-89 team. Did you cover that team much? That's the that's the uh, the team that won the Big Ten famously, uh, even though they were projected towards the absolute bottom. Uh, won the Big Ten when Illinois went to the Final Four and when Michigan not only went to the Final Four but won the national championship. That, to me, seemed like that was almost the the apex of Knight's genius to take a team that didn't seem to have a ton of talent. I mean, Jay Edwards, of course, but – but no first round draft picks, as I recall, and will it to the top of the Big Ten standings? Yeah. Was Brian Evans on that team? I think it, I think he might have been. He, I don't think so. I think it was it was uh, Sloan screen been. number Sloan screen number 45, if I remember Dick Vitale's quote correctly. <laughs> and Eric Anderson and yeah. uh Lyndon Jones and sure. Jay Edwards. And they just Jay Edwards just became one of the most amazing clutch players in the country. Boy, As you describe it. in your terrific interview with him, and you can find the interview with Jay Edwards that, that Mark did on markmonteith.com, where he talks about he just felt like he could make every shot, and he did. He hit a game-winning or what appeared to be a game-winning shot on three consecutive Sundays on national television that year. Um, just an incredible clutch shooter. Yeah, I worked hard for that Jay Edwards episode of the I want a one. I had to drive up and get him and bring him down here to do it twice. <laughs> <laughs> I chased him for three or four years to get him to do that and finally wore him down. But um, I did not cover that 88, 89 team. Uh, I was, I think at that time, you know, this gets into inside baseball bit on newspapers. You know, I cover, I got a leave of absence from the Fort Wayne journal Gazette, do that book with Purdue. I did one Sunday column a week got half pay, which was a very generous thing that their, the editor there, Craig Klugman, did for me to help my career. So I go back to the paper for 88, 89, and we had kind of had an agreement that I could work out of. I was working out of Indianapolis at that time. I moved to Indianapolis in 1984 when the Colts moved here to be centrally located. And then suddenly everything changed, and they wanted me to move back to Fort Wayne. And I go, wait a minute now. you know, I thought we had an agreement here. And that kind of led to me actually leaving in 1990. But that 88-89 season, uh, I was basically covering Purdue, uh, again, just for the newspaper. You mentioned the Colts. We've talked a lot about basketball, and then we want to spend the rest of the time really discussing uh, your connection with the Indiana Pacers. But as a, as a Pike Township kid, what was your reaction when you – heard on the radio, saw on TV, read in the newspaper, the Baltimore Colts are coming to Indianapolis. I mean, we've, we've had discussions, David Frick, who was senior deputy mayor came on the podcast where he talked about the negotiations. It's come up on several other occasions when we discussed the uh, legacy of, of Bill Hudnut, Bill Benner talked about it. We hope to have Robin Miller on the podcast. He can talk about it as well, but were you just like, this can't be happening? Yeah, I was in Seattle, the Final Four. Uh, Bill Benner was there, too. I remember talking to him. You know, the word, I probably heard it from Bill because he was talking to somebody at the Stars office. And we were in Seattle for that Final Four. uh, Georgetown was out there. And uh, uh, I can't even remember all the teams now. I guess Houston. But uh, Georgetown, Houston. Yeah, you're right. Virginia, Mm -hmm. which, you know, should have been IU, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but that's how I heard it, you know, that, God, the culture movement, it seemed surreal. It had never occurred to me that Indianapolis would ever get an NFL team. It seemed like we were lucky 
to have uh, an NBA team at that time in 1984, barely had an NBA team. We had minor league baseball, and that really kind of seemed like all we could support. Uh, so to hear that an NFL team was moving to Indianapolis was abs- you know, just hard to imagine at that time, no question. Did you cover the Colts much? I did. In fact, that's why I moved. You know, I'd been living in Fort Wayne. And then uh, when the Colts moved to Indianapolis in 1984, I convinced the uh, paper there, let me move to Indianapolis. I'll just work from home on a laptop computer. I, uh, I, I'll i be that much closer to IU and Purdue. I could cover the Colts. I could do some Pacer things. I'll cover the race in May. You know, I'll save you all kinds of money on travel expenses. And they went for it, finally. I've been trying to get him to do that for a while. And finally, when the Colts moved to Indy, that was kind of the last uh, – piece of evidence I needed. And uh, I covered the Colts um, really home and away for the first couple of years. And those were trying times. <laughs> they were bad teams, but nobody cared. You know, the city was so happy to have an NFL team that um, people obviously wanted them to win, but nobody was getting too upset because everybody was giddy over just having a team. It's funny to look back when the RCA dome was imploded uh, Channel 13 ran a video clip of the very first Colts game that was played there. And the thing that jumped out at me jumped out at me immediately was that fans didn't wear jerseys in those days. Everybody was wearing street clothes, sweaters, <laughs> shirts and stuff. Nobody had on a team jersey. And now it's like 95% of the people have a jersey on. Uh, it was a whole different atmosphere back then. What was it like when uh, the Colts – famously traded for Eric Dickerson that like, wow, not only do we have a big league team, now we have a big league star. That seemed to be a watershed moment in the franchise's history. Yeah, it was, it was because he was nationally known. I mean, he was an absolute superstar in the NFL and, you know, Indianapolis has not had many players like that who are like MVP candidates. There had been some great players in the ABA, but that had been a while, you know, it had been 10 years since the uh, ABA uh, Pacers that had their peak moments in the ABA and um, everybody knew Eric Dickerson and, you know, Indianapolis were a smaller city and you could argue that we have kind of, you know, uh, issues with um, self, you know, worth or whatever, you know, that, you know, we're always thinking that the big cities get all the breaks and, you know, we're just little Indianapolis, that kind of thing. And so for the Colts to get a player like Eric Dickerson, you know, a badass running back from LA uh, was a big deal. Now you look back on it, it was not a good trade, you know, long-term for the Colts, but for that moment, um, I think the word I kept hearing was that it gave the Colts legitimacy, right? Everybody in the country knew who Eric Dickerson was and for him to go come to the Colts that made the Colts seem like a more legitimate team. Like when Reggie White signed with the Packers and completely yeah, changed that yeah. franchise. You yeah, mentioned, you can do that. You mentioned, um, uh, conspiracies perhaps or inferiority complex. And yeah. of course I'm thinking about the NBA rigging the uh, lottery so that uh, Patrick Ewing goes to the Knicks, uh, which we all I believed. That. I was just going to say, which we all believed happened. And it's a, it's a, well, I should say all of us fans believed happened. It's a perfect segue into your history with the Pacers. Uh, when did you start covering the Pacers as part of your full-time gig and uh, take us through some of the, maybe the better, seasons you covered or some of the more historic moments you covered? Yeah. 
Well, I, I went to Pacer games as a fan their very first season, 67, 68 season. I was would have been a 12-year-old kid then. And so I would go to games, you know, a handful a year through those ABA years. Then when I went to college, I was away from it, of course. But when I moved back to Indianapolis in 1984 to work out of here for the Fort Wayne paper, I would do some Pacer stories. I didn't go to every game or cover every game, but I'd go to games and I was writing some stories, you know, about certain players like Jerry Sheetsting or whatever. Um, I started, uh, you know, I started with the the Indianapolis News in 1993. And then the year later, that was merged into the Star in 94. Um, I started as a beat writer for the Star covering the Pacers in the 96-97 season, which was Larry Brown's last season. Uh, and then covered them up through 2008 when Jim O'Brien was the coach. So I, had, I was fortunate. I had good timing in that. I covered uh, the end of Larry Brown, which was not a good season. Uh, but I covered the Larry Bird years and the Rick Carlisle and Isaiah Thomas years as well. And I covered, you know, before 96, I covered uh, some of the playoff games, like was, would have been a second or third reporter at some of those games at Marcus Square Arena when Larry Brown was coaching the team. I want to make sure that you get a chance to, we're going to go back to this time period, but I want to make sure you get a chance to discuss your book. It's called Reborn, The Pacers and the Return of Pro Basketball to Indianapolis. Hey, I happen to have a copy handy. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about your book uh, and and what it chronicles and some of the uh, little nuggets that you learned when doing research. Yeah, I enjoyed the research for that. I actually began that process in like early 90s. You know, I got kind of frustrated with the situation with the Fort Wayne paper and left there in 1990, right after the race, after the 500, um, and kind of freelance for a year or two. Then I took a job with a book publisher for a couple of years before getting back into newspapers. But I had a period there of a year and a half or two where I was kind of freelancing and doing whatever I could. And I always thought, man, it'd be great to do a book on those early Pacer seasons, those ABA years, because I'd gone to games as a kid. And so I began interviewing people then. And I actually wound up getting kind of uh, distracted. I learned about the professional teams before the Pacers, going back to the Indianapolis Kautskis in the early 30s and then the Olympians in the early 50s. So I interviewed a bunch of those players. I've got interviews with players who have been dead for 20, 30 years now mm. uh, that I did in the early 90s that I hope to be able to take advantage of someday. It's, you know, Johnny Wooden played pro ball here in the 30s. The Olympians are a great story in the early 50s. Uh, that a lot of people that I kind of touched on in my book. Uh, but I, I'd gone to those Pacer ABA games and I knew some of the stories and, you know, I knew how they kind of lit up the city, you know, the Pacers to the, Uh, city of Indianapolis in the late 60s, early 70s were kind of like the Beatles, you know, coming in and just getting everybody, you know, really excited and something to rally around. And, uh, you know, that was a big part of people's youth. So uh, I started interviewing people for it in the early 90s. But then when I wind up covering uh, the Pacers for the Star, you know, that's basically a year round job for 12 years. And I was able to take advantage of some of the travel and interview people when I was on a road trip, like when the Pacers played Minnesota, I interviewed George Mikan at his home. Oh, that's terrific. So that was great. But, you know, it's such a day-to-day grind covering an NBA team that you, when you do have time off, you really don't feel like working on a book. So I kind of put it aside for quite a while. Then I, after I left the star, I kind of went back to it 
and uh, finally, you know, was able to get it done for what was essentially the 50th anniversary of the franchise, you know, from 1967 up to 2017. You know, I was able to uh, get the book out for that. I, my initial idea was to do something on all the ABA years. I wound up with 400 pages on the first two years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really got into how the franchise came together because, you know, you got to realize this was not an expansion franchise that joined the NBA. This was a team starting from scratch in a league that was starting from scratch that nobody really thought would survive. So the Pacers were just so lucky, so lucky to put together the organization they did to get a future Hall of Famer like Roger Brown out of a factory, working the night shift in Dayton, Ohio, to GM factory. You get Freddie Lewis, who's backing up Oscar Robertson in Cincinnati, hardly playing there. You get Mel Daniels the second year for $100,000, you know, in a trade because Minnesota is moving and they need some cash. So, you know, you're putting this team together just from good fortune, basically. And then the second year is not going well. Well, Slick Leonard's working for Herf Jones up in Kokomo, and, you know, they got him back into coaching. He had coached in Baltimore in the end not gone well because he uh, uh, had a young team, but he's selling class rings and graduation supplies up in Coke. Perfectly happy up there. And he comes back and coaches the Pacers as a part-time job. Basically he didn't give up that Herb Jones job because he didn't know if the ABA would survive. So for a couple of years, you know, he's doing both. He's coaching the Pacers and, you know, making calls, selling graduation supplies to high schools. Did he sell championship rings to the Pacers after he coached them to championships? Yes, he did. He, <laughs> he helped the team. <laughs> so, uh, and, and most people don't realize that Bobby Leonard's connection to Hoosier basketball goes back to, I think, the 53 IU National Championship team with Don yeah. Schlunt, correct? Right. He was, he was a member a of that team. Leonard was the junior on that team and hit the game-winning free throws. And, uh, you know, he went to high school in Terre Haute. So he was, uh, you know, he goes all the way back and he was back in Indiana figuring he was out of basketball after uh, leaving the Baltimore Bullets. But he got fired. It wasn't announced as a firing, but he got fired. And he's back in Kokomo and his wife, Nancy's teaching uh, classes at Kokomo Taylor High School. And he's traveling around the northern part of the state selling graduation supplies, meeting with principals, uh, high school principals and using his good name to good use. And uh, suddenly the Pacers come calling that second year and he's back in it. And uh, so it's, it's just an amazing set of circumstances that allowed the Pacers to get off the ground and survive those early years. And I got into a lot of the personal stories of those early Pacer players, you know, Jimmy rail from Kokomo was an original Pacer and he had a great individual story and, you know, Roger Brown and of course Mel and Freddie Lewis and, uh, guys like Reggie Harding, who played that first year, uh, seven foot center, who was really talented but couldn't get his mind out of the his mindset out of the get ghetto. Um, yeah, so I got into the personal stories too. So uh, I cut it off after two years, and uh, you know this is how they got off the ground. And the next project would be on the championship years of the ABA Pacers. And I've tried to, and I'm going to once all this Rona drama ends. I, a, I, of course, we'd love to have Slick Leonard on the podcast. Uh, we'd love a chance to talk to him. I've met him just a few times, but obviously don't know him very well. And then I would like to do a podcast on the Pacers during the ABA days. And I've talked to Bill Benner about it. And he says, we well, can't do it unless Monteith joins us. And I'm <laughs> like, okay, that's fair. Uh, 
let me ask you a quick question. The very best Indiana Pacers ABA team plays the very best Indiana Pacers NBA team, seven-game series, who wins? Yeah, you know, I'm going to make some people angry with this, but I would say probably the NBA team, but only because the game changed so much over those 20, 30, 40 years, whatever we're going to be talking about. Uh, the, the players got so much bigger and more athletic. You know, now the ABA championship teams were, you know, the best. They might not have been as good as the NBA champion, who knows, but they were competitive with that team. So for their era, they were great. And no Pacer team has ever won an NBA championship. But you got to realize, like, Mel Daniels was the ABA's most valuable player two different years as a Hall of Famer. He was the center. He was six foot nine, 220 pounds. That's Paul George. Paul George is 6'9", 220. So, mm-hmm. you know, the Pacers had a starting backcourt of a six-foot guard, Freddie Lewis. Sometimes it was Billy Keller at 5'10", or it might have been Donnie Freeman at 6'3". You know, just the size and, you know, the players changed so much that an ABA team would have been overwhelmed physically by a Pacers NBA team where you have, you know, say you have the team of Roy Hibbert and David West and Paul George and, and uh, you know, the other starters they had, um, George Hill, those guys, it would have been overwhelming physically. People will get angry hearing that. But if you're talking about, the ABA Pacer team as it was at that time versus the NBA team as it was at that time, the NBA team I think would be overwhelming physically, um, but you cannot take anything away from the ABA guys. They grew up in an entirely different era where you didn't have AAU in the summer. You didn't play year round. You didn't train year round like the guys mm-hmm. today, you know, you kind of took the summers off and used training camp to get back in shape. So there was just a physical difference between the the two eras and as much as people don't want to admit it, the guys are better today, you know, and people will often say, Oh, they shot the ball so much better back then. Well, they didn't. All you got to do is look at the shooting percentages, you know, look at the free throw percentages, the three point percentages, all that. They shoot it better today. I'm sorry. You know, I'm old enough to be nostalgic and say it was way better back then. <laughs> to look at it objectively. And the guys today are better. You know, they just are. When Donnie Walsh came on the podcast, and I, I think if my memory serves correctly, the Pacers won in the ABA championship 70, 72, 73. Correct. Uh-huh. And the NBA champions those years were the Knicks, the Lakers, and then the Knicks again. Mm-hmm. And I asked him how he thought the Pacers could play against those teams. So we're not mixing eras like right. we were in my previous question. Right. But uh, of course, I don't think that it. The 72 Laker team that won the NBA championship went 69 and 13. And that was a transcendent team with a 33 game winning streak. But how do you think the Pacers would have done that same collection of talent, McGinnis and everyone else against the NBA teams of the same era? Yeah. I think if you're going to go to the Pacers in 73, uh, the last title they won by that time, George McGinnis is a second year player. He's got some experience. He's a little older. That team um, could have matched up, you know, with the Knicks team. In fact, you know, the Pacers and Knicks had an exhibition game at the Coliseum uh, in, I want to say, 71. They weren't coming off championship years, but they both had been champions in 70. And so the Knicks with their team together and the Pacers with their championship team together, it would have been in the fall of 71. The two teams had an exhibition game at the Coliseum. Are you, are you aware of this story? 
never heard it before. So okay. take your time. Yeah, it's uh, it's and it's often misrepresented, but the Pacers and Knicks, two championship teams, square off in a exhibition game at the Coliseum, sells out. And the weird thing about it, the Knicks won by two points, but the bizarre thing about it was that both coaches sat their starters in the fourth quarter. They treated it like a preseason game and played the starters like first and third quarter and played reserves second and fourth quarter. Uh, and, you know, Slick likes to talk now like, well, Slick will tell you the Pacers won for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> he'll tell you that uh, he'll tell you there was a banquet the day of that game and Bill Bradley got up and, was insulting Indianapolis and Roger Brown came to me after that banquet and said, let me take Bradley tonight. And Roger went for 32 points that night and held Bradley to 12 or whatever, you know, and it's not true. None of that's true. <laughs> the Knicks won by two points. It was a great game, but the Pacers did prove they were competitive with that Knicks team, you know, so it was still a positive moment for anyone who doubted the ABA or doubted the Pacers. They were competitive with the Knicks team that had won a championship and was going to win another one a year later. Um, the Knicks actually, uh, the Pacers kind of rallied in the fourth quarter with their reserves. Rick Mountain, Billy Keller were coming off the bench playing well. Um, and the Knicks actually brought their starters back into the game uh, to win the game uh, by a couple of points. So the Pacers showed up well. And Walt Frazier and guys were highly complimentary of the Pacers after that game. I talked to Frazier even now when the Knicks come in. You know, he's on the broadcast crew. And we'll talk about that game some. And he remembers being impressed by the Pacers. It's kind of funny, Billy Keller, um, you know, he's five foot 10 and spends his winters in Florida. Now he doesn't look like a former uh, pro <laughs> basketball player. And he says, whenever somebody seems surprised that he played professional basketball, he's got a picture on his phone from that exhibition game. I'm talking about where he's dribbling up court with Walt Frazier guarding him. He'll show him that look, you know, I, I've got it on my phone now, actually, that he posts people a picture of Walt Frazier guarding him in that exhibition game to prove to people that he played professional basketball. One of the things we've talked about in this podcast is the book Reborn uh, that Mark wrote. Reborn, the Pacers and the return of pro basketball to Indianapolis. It's available on Amazon. If you're a fan of the Pacers and grew up in the era. It's a little bit before my time. I was born in 67, but I'm old <laughs> enough to remember the ABA days and certainly old enough to remember the god-awful telethon. But please pick up this book. Uh, and while we're at it, I want to make sure that I say this again. Uh, if you love Indiana sports history, Purdue, IU, high school, pro, whatever, uh, please take a look around markmonteith.com. It's markmonteith.com, and you can uh, read interviews by Mark, and you can listen to some of his tremendous discussions with uh, Hoosier legends. Uh, it's a $20 for a lifetime membership. Uh, I, I joined a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this podcast, and I'm really glad I did. And if you, and if you want to choose one that's really going to get you hooked, Listen to uh, part one, I believe, of his interview with Isaiah Thomas. Mm -hmm. It's an absolute miracle that Isaiah Thomas ended up at IU. And if you're familiar with the story, you'll understand what I mean. But if you're not familiar with the story, listen to Mark Monte's interview with Isaiah Thomas. And not only you'll understand what Isaiah had to go through just to make it to school every day, but how he basically, his mother walked away from 
a briefcase full of cash <laughs> that Isaiah says was presented in front of the family in the living room. And Isaiah went to IU and Isaiah talks about why he went to IU and why he was glad he did. MarkMonteith.com. Mark, we end the podcast with the same five questions of all guests. Are you ready? I'm ready. What was your first job? Oh, not, not, not professional job, huh? This job period, I guess it would have been on the grounds crew at the Highland Country Club um, on the golf course there. I was in high school at Pike. And I uh, was able to get a job uh, on the grounds crew. And I knew nothing about golf at that time. I mean, I should not have. <laughs> I remember being out there cutting greens with a hand-propelled mower and uh, trying to make that golf course look good. So I had a job out there for about two seventy-five an hour, I think. And then I went right from there to a job pouring sidewalks and curbs for a non-union construction firm for three twenty-five an hour. Seemed like a lot of money. Question number two, what was your first concert? Oh, I'm almost ashamed of this. I'm not ashamed, but when I was a freshman at Ball State, I didn't go to any concerts in high school for some reason, but I went to uh, a concert with the Carpenters at Ball State. Shameful. (laughs) Hey, they didn't bring in big names. Now my first, I went to IU the following fall. And right when school started, I went to a concert, Beach Boys, Eagles, and Kansas. And that was a good one. Holy magna. Okay. You've redeemed yourself. I'm sorry. You have redeemed yourself. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, a great Ballard was at IU when you were there. Did you happen to see him at a frat party or some no, other such event? No, he I graduated in 78 and we had mayor Ballard on our inaugural podcast. His first concert was Sly and the family stone at Bloomington. Okay. I didn't go to that one. You know, I missed, I went to summer school down there and Elvis was there in the summer and I didn't, I didn't have the money. I didn't go to the concert, which I obviously wish I had. And the Rolling Stones were there one summer too. And I didn't go to that either. Uh, I just didn't go to that many concerts down there. Question number three, if you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Oh my uh obviously i can't say my own you know that would be uh uh too obvious um i'm looking around my room here at different books that i have uh favorite book i mean season on the brink is one a college basketball fan if you're an iu fan a bob knight fan you should certainly read that um for the insight it gives um you know i just finished a two-volume biography of Frank Sinatra. And each one was like seven, 800 pages. And I'm not that big of a Frank Sinatra fan, but I started reading it and I didn't want to be a quitter. And I also was really impressed by the job that the writer did. The amount of research that he put into this was kind of inspiring for me. Because, you know, if you're going to write a book, you know, that's the challenge of how much research you're going to put into this. Yeah, exactly. You can stop at any time, right? You know, but you're going to go the extra mile and make that extra phone call or, you know, read that extra article or, or whatever. And while it's not necessarily the favorite books I've ever read in my life, but I'm looking at it now, there's a two volume set um, biography of Frank Sinatra that, boy, anything you want to know about Frank Sinatra, it's in there. It was, it's complete and it's just an incredibly impressive uh, work of journalism. 
Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Mm, any event in history. Um, well, I would have been, I would have liked to have met Jesus to find out what was real. You know, how is, is this real? So or, the Sermon on the Mount or the resurrection? Yeah, anything. Just, you know, could he really do the things they said he did? You know, um, uh, how much of this is mythology that developed or how much of it is true? You know, any event surrounding him, you know, would have been awfully enlightening. As far as more modern day things, um, I mean, I would have loved to have, to be able to say that I was at the Milan championship game in 1954, if we're just going to get into, you know, more meaningless sporting events would have been historic. I would have loved to have seen the addicts championship team, you know, the next year or 55 or 56. Um, I, I've seen most of the major pacer things, but if we're talking about sporting events, I think that, uh, or to see Jesse Owens run, you know, sure. Jesse Owens in the Olympics in 1936. I think that maybe that would be my top sporting event. I think ESPN or somebody said that was the greatest sports moment in history, Jesse Owens winning that gold medal. And by the way, I've got an uncle named Bob Lemon who went to Purdue who ran against Jesse Owens. Uh, huh. uh, my uncle Bob Lemon was the Big Ten Hurdles champion in I think it was 1938. And uh, I've got a picture of him with him arm in arm with Jesse Owens, you know, when Jesse was at Ohio state because they competed against one another. And uh, my uncle Bob was great. He, uh, he would say that whenever I competed against Jesse, I stayed right with him until the gun went off. <laughs> <laughs> so he, you know, he, he wasn't making any excuses. He, he knew who the better man was in those races, but um, it kind of makes me proud that my uncle, you know, ran against Jesse Owens and kind of had a relationship with. Him. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose living oh. today? Dinner with anyone living today. Um, Bill Benner. <laughs> I've had a lot of dinners with Bill. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of meals on the road. You know, here's a quick distraction. You know, back when Bob Knight was coaching at IU, uh, and I think this is literally true that if you put three or more sports writers together from the state of Indiana, and this could have been in August, it could have been any day of the year, the conversation would always turn to Bob Knight at every single time during the I year. I believe it. At IU, you know, we could be sitting down at the speedway having lunch or something, and it would always turn to Bob Knight. That's how dominant he was in everybody's conscience at the time. Uh, but that's not your question. The question living today, you know, I, I'm, Maybe Michael Jordan, you know, I mean, that's a cliche answer, I suppose, but he would be interesting to talk to. I, if Will Chamberlain were alive, I would say him in a heartbeat. He was my favorite player growing up. I think he was a fascinating guy uh, and a disappointing performer in some regards, you know, but he would be an awfully interesting guy to talk to. I probably will think of somebody when uh, we get done here. Well, Michael Jordan is an answer we've not had before. So yeah. surprisingly, uh, so that's a darn good answer. Guy, you know, he's not a complex guy or, you know, whatever, but he would be interesting to talk to all these years later. He would be much more interesting to talk to now than he would have been when he was playing. I think you know, he's got a whole different perspective now. 
You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Mark Monteith, a purveyor of markmonteith.com, which I strongly suggest you to vi- suggest you visit. He was a longtime writer for the Indianapolis Star and other places in Indiana, and is the foremost uh, chronicler of basketball in this state. Mark, thank you very, very much for joining us. Hey, Robert, thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.